morning, good morning. Woo, I feel like I went to church already and I haven't even got started yet. So, uh, amen, have a great day, early breakfast today. No lunch? No? All right. We'll get into it a little bit. So, 1988 was the year. There was a company that was already highly successful. It was averaging, uh, it had worked its way up to about $877 million in sales by any stretch. That is a phenomenal uh, annual level of sales. And uh, in 1988, they reached out to a company in Portland, a marketing firm, and said, hey, we need a new slogan for our company. And a man in Portland had uh, actually been watching uh, uh, like a documentary about a guy who faced the firing squad, believe it or not. And they asked him if he had any final words. And his final words were, just do it. And so he told Phil Knight and his company that that would be a phenomenal uh, slogan for their shoe company, and they went from $877 million a year to $9.2 billion, with a B, dollars per year, on the back of three little words. Just do it. And something happens when people get motivated to move into action all of the thoughts and dreams that they have in their heart. I was actually thinking about showing you the very first Just Do It commercial, but uh, it's pretty funny. It's from 1988, and uh, you want me to tell you what it is? It's pretty funny. It's an older guy. He's 70, and it says, you know, 70-year-old, what's his name, gets up and runs 13 miles every day. And there's a picture of him, and he's a uh, live-action shot of him, and he's running across the Golden Gate Bridge. And he looks at the camera, and he goes, you know, because he runs 13 miles every day, uh, every morning. And he says, you know, my friends ask me when I get up and run in the morning and it's cold, how do I keep my teeth from chattering? And I tell them, I just leave them in my locker. And then just do it flashes on the screen. It's the first time that we see the slogan, just do it. And that silly commercial launched the campaign that motivated people to get up and just do it. Just do it. Now, listen, I'm going to uh, I'm going to take us on a little bit of a journey this morning. But before I do, I got to warn some people in the room. First of all, if you're here with us and you're visiting, I'm so glad that you're here. You picked a great week because we're going to talk this morning probably about one of the things that has kept you maybe away from visiting church for a long time because some people who said that they are something haven't actually done that thing and it's bothered you on some level and it's probably the reason that maybe you've checked some things out but never really fully engaged. So we're going to deal with that a little bit today. If you've been on a journey with Jesus, maybe like me, for a million years, then what today will do is it'll just hit us right in the mm, right in the gizzard, make us do it, all right? And so I'm excited. I'm, I'm really pumped up. I got to be honest with you. This message, the Lord gave this to me uh, as I was first praying and thinking about coming here, and the Lord was unpacking all those things, and I spoke on Mother's Day. Some of you were here on Mother's Day. This was plan A until the Lord honestly just was like, you're not ready to preach that yet there. You got to finish going through what you're going through to be ready. So how many know sometimes that the preacher has got to learn the message in his life before he can deliver the message? And so I'm a work in progress on that. And it's okay if you're a work in progress on this one. If this one hits you low, I feel like I got maybe two or three more weeks where we don't really know each other all that well yet. So if I just say some things and they hurt, you can just pretend like I'm talking to someone else, not to you. 
And so you can kind of deflect it. So now is the time when I'm just going to unload all of those things that, that later in life, because we know each other well, you know, you'll feel like it's a little bit more personal and you want to talk to me afterwards and I'll get the mean emails. Right now I haven't got any mean emails yet, so I'm just going to keep on running and, uh, <laughs> with it. But, but uh, i got to talk to a few people this morning. First of all, to my procrastinator friends, this one's going to hurt. So just hang out with me. Don't take it personal. I don't know that you're a procrastinator yet. So, so it's okay to just kind of go here, right? Um, to those of my friends that, that don't do risk really well, that you like things to just line up orderly and to make, you know, all the sense, this one's going to hurt a little bit for you too. And so, so those, of you that, uh, those of you that are adventure seekers and are just like, you know, I don't care. Let's just, you know, we're just going to close the door. I'm going to pack a sack and I don't know when I'm coming back. I'm leaving the house and you're just crazy adventurers. Some of you, I'm going to have to rein in just a little bit and we're going to harness that energy and go somewhere with it this morning. And, and, and then for everyone else, that's kind of somewhere else on the spectrum I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you something right now, and you're probably, you know, if you check out, you know, if you're on the, uh, the podcast listening and you're not going to, you know, you're going to finish your run before I get done preaching, this is the, mo- this is the moment you want to be paying attention to so that you just capture uh, this thing, is that can we just all agree and just assume that we're supposed to do something, right? I was talking to my wife about it, and she goes, that sounds like what every wife wants to just tell her husband about the house, right? Just assume that you're supposed to do something. You may not know what it is, but just assume that you're supposed to do something, okay? So, so if you don't catch anything else this morning, here's what I want you to just catch. Just assume that you're supposed to do something, whatever it is. Can we, kind of, can we agree on that for a moment, and then we'll, we'll move there? You're still with me. You're not mad at me yet, so we're all feeling good. All right, cool. So get, get ready to get mad at me. Um, <laughs> I, I heard this a couple of weeks ago, and uh, probably part of why I couldn't preach this message yet is I hadn't learned this principle. And so, uh, and I'm learning this principle as we go. But I was thinking about this actually just this morning. I was talking to some of the fellas, and uh, we are uh, committing, uh, getting a little competitive about getting in better shape. And uh, all of us can afford to do that in some degree, right? And so, uh, so we're talking about that. But there's this principle that I, you know, I like food. Anybody else like food? Yeah. All right. Good. Right. I feel like that's just where you know God designed me. I have a special gift for consuming food, and uh, I'm anointed in that. I can just you know consume mass quantity of food. It's awesome. What I don't necessarily like is getting out and exercising and doing stuff, right? And I was thinking about how. In our faith and in our walk with Jesus, we talk a lot about making sure that you know how to feed yourself. We talk a lot about coming to church and getting fed. And we talk a lot, like we use that metaphor a lot, that we need to consume, we gotta, we got to devour what God's doing in our lives. Now, for a lot of the time, we focus on this idea that we can be spiritually starving because we don't feed ourselves enough, right? And we, we need to learn how to feed ourselves. We talk about that all the time. But you know what we don't ever talk about is the other end of the spectrum, we can be spiritually gorging and never take all those spiritual calories that we are imbuing into our system and then burn them by doing things. And what happens is we get really good. We have the spiritual gift of consuming and the Lord's like, hey, I keep pouring into you. You need to get on like the treadmill. You need to go do something with all of this stuff that I put into your life. Just do something. Just assume that you're supposed to do something. And that 
is kind of where we're going to take off today. And I want to talk a little bit about risk. Um, risk is a crazy thing. I'm, I'm not naturally a risk person, but the Lord seems to take me from risk to risk in my life. And uh, I don't understand what he's trying to teach me. I wish I could just learn it because my personality is not to go risk to risk. But Jesus seems to take me from risk to risk. And so I want just for a second. So we're all on the same page. Uh, I'm going to give you like 10 seconds. I just want you to think about maybe one or two things that you would look at your life and you go, man, that was a huge risk when I did that. That was just a huge risk. Think of something that was like a huge risk in your life. Now, I'm not afraid of you shouting out at me. Does anyone have one of the risks? What is, was something that they could share that's appropriate for the whole room? Yeah, foster care. That's awesome. Good. Taking care of babies. Yeah. What else? Yeah, moving. That's a big deal. I just did that. Crazy risk. Yeah, trying to get a house. Changing careers. Becoming a Christian. Good. Marriage. I was waiting for that one. That's the first one that I thought of. <laughs> Oh, Lord, please let this work out. <laughs> Good. Those are all great, great and amazing risks. And there, there's, there's something about this idea that we all, we all feel like we should take risks. And, and here's the thing. I was thinking about this idea that it's hard to know beforehand whether or not the risk is a good risk to take. Because some risks would be silly, right? Like it would be a risk to, uh, you know, hey, let's rob a bank. You guys want to rob a bank with me? That'd be a risk, right? There's a chance that, like, we can get a lot of money. That'd be awesome. But, you know, that's probably not a wise risk. So how do we know, you know, I went to an extreme, but how do we know whether or not that risk is something that we should take? Is it from the Lord? Is it wise? Does it make sense? Is it good? And, uh, and so I wanna, we're going to talk about that a little bit. The other part, um, just so if I talk for a long time and you lose me, I want you to catch it up front. I think that sometimes, all right, this is another shot that's going to hurt. Just be ready, right? Here's what I hear a lot. I'm just, I'm just waiting to hear from the Lord what I'm supposed to do. I'm just waiting to hear from the Lord. I, I'm not sure yet. I'm just waiting to hear from the Lord. We spend this whole season of our life waiting, and we have permission somehow by saying it that way to not do anything in that time. And so, so here's the shot. Okay, you guys ready? Brace. Did you wait for permission from the Lord before you checked your Facebook this week? Did you wait for permission from the Lord before you went to dinner? Did you wait for, see, there's some things that you just do because they're part of your life, but somehow when it comes to the things of our spiritual nature and things that the Bible says that these are principles that we should do, we feel like we need a word in order to activate what the word has already told us we can and should do. So, so are we all together now? Everyone's feeling it together? All right, let's jump into the end of the word this morning. Um, we are going to be uh, in First Samuel. If you're a Bible person, head on over there. Um, I, w- I want to say one more thing as you're getting over there. I'm going to put a verse, James 4, 17 up here, because what I was just talking about is the idea that there is a type of sin that is a sin of not doing something. And here's the thing. We love when people let me say we love we laugh when people fail. Right. We live in a world right now where people capture fails. There's an entire genre of videos and comedy that's all about people trying something and failing. I mean, we love watching the skateboard guy just wreck himself as he's trying to go down the stairs. And like we we laugh at that. We always think about, you know, oh, people who fail. We can we all like to kind of stand in the crowd and observe someone trying something and just wiping out and not making it right. What we don't have a way of measuring is people who never try anything. And we don't, we don't ever look at that like a fail. 
like I was the guy who didn't do anything because we don't have a way of observing that. But the scripture doesn't let us off the hook for not doing anything. As a matter of fact, in James, I love this. It says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Let that just percolate in there just a little bit. If you know there's something in here that you're supposed to be doing and you don't do it, James says, that's sin for you. That's disobedience. See, we, it's easy to sit back and be like, well, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for the moment that I'm supposed to do the thing. It's easy to just kind of sit back there and go, well, you know, <laughs> you know, Pastor Mike, he tried to start this thing. It didn't work. But, you know, that happens or whatever. But there's something inside of us that instinctively knows that's not right, but it's safe. There's also something inside of us, well, my procrastinator friends, that says, I got time to do that thing eventually. Right? I bet you if we had the time to do it, which we definitely don't, I, I could walk around the room and I could just ask about dreams and ideas that you've had, that books that you thought you should write, uh, businesses you thought you should start, poems that you thought you should write, stories using your art, using your gift, all of these ideas that have just been percolating in you indefinitely. And it's good. And you ought to do it, and it's inside of you. But it's kind of like, oh, when that next season comes, when that next time happens, when that next thing, you know, I know I've got a heart. If I had, I could retire if someone would just give me money every time someone came up to me and said, I know I'm supposed to invest in children or teenagers or whatever. I just don't have time right now, but I really want to give back into one of those areas. I mean, man, I could live in Hawaii. That would be the risk, right? If I had this for that, because we know it's just like, oh, I just got to get through this thing. I just got to do this next thing. And I'm telling you, there's timing and that's true and that's real. But there's something about I know the good I should be doing and I don't do it. I don't do it. So let's walk into the word a little bit so that you know I'm not crazy. And we'll uh, we're going to walk into I'm going to be in first Samuel chapter 14 this morning uh, for a little while. And I'm going to just read a whole section of just an absolutely insane story, and we're going to laugh together at how crazy it is, and then we're going to be struck by just the awesomeness of our God. So you know what's happening in 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'm a story guy, and so I love just being in the story. Um, the Israelites have finally got a king. They were frustrated because they wanted a king like everybody else had a king, so they did um, what they knew to do, and they picked the tallest, best-looking guy and said, dude, you're the king. And so Saul is now the king. He's the tallest. He's the best looking. And uh, that's usually, you know, the first two categories that I look for in a leader. Um, (laughs) You obviously did. So um, (laughs) Um, (laughs) we're done. Um, (laughs) So so anyways, they uh, they look for these two qualities. They find it in Saul. Um, At this time, the Philistine army has kind of come in and subjugated uh, the Israelites and they're frustrated about it. Saul has a son, Jonathan, who's a total rock star, and uh, Jonathan and Saul kind of raised the army up, and they attack the Philistines. They gather about 300,000 men, and uh, what's neat and interesting at this time is because the Philistines are kind of in control, they don't want uh, the Israelites to have weapons, so they're using, like, farm tools to fight, so it's just, like, savage, I don't know, something in my inner man, just like, oh, you know, I'll fight you with this, you know, rake, and we'll just fight them off, and they're fighting the... Uh, They're fighting the Philistines, and they win their first battle as an army under the king. And it's just they're, like, excited. They're stoked. The Philistines have kind of retreated. Saul, uh, Saul because, you know, they picked him because he was a military genius. 
uh, his move is, okay, he dismisses the army after that, and he keeps about 3,000 of the 300,000 that he had with him. He sends everybody else home. And uh, those 3,000 are kind of camped in this valley. And then they all of a sudden they realized that the Philistines, who were a warring people, their strategy was, hey, out of nowhere, 300,000 have kind of gathered to fight us. So they had like more of a strategic retreat than, you know, they got defeated, but, but they've regrouped on the high ground. Now, because they have blacksmiths and weapons and things like that, they have assimilated their army again, and now they've got chariots, which are basically the tanks of that day. They've got the high ground. They've got numbers because there's only about 3,000 Israelites with no weapons down in this valley, and uh, they're ready to come back in and show the Israelites who's boss. So Saul recognizes this, and he's like, ooh. I really blew it. He starts doing offerings and like, hey, God, help us. You know, I don't know what to do now. And uh, and they're hanging out in this area. And essentially what happens is his 3000 guys, they can do math. There's like, wow, there's a lot more of them. They have the high ground. They have weapons. They have chariots. Deuces. They're out. So they start they start, you know, retreating and going back. It says they like hidden cisterns like they're hiding in the well. They're just they're like, we do not want to get killed by these Philistines. And as Saul looks around, basically it's him and Jonathan. They're the only two who have actual normal weapons, him and his son. And there's about 600 guys that remain. And the Philistines are gathered. Now, the Philistines are smart. They took the high ground that you have to go on this path that there's cliffs on either side. And they have like a choke point now. And it's just a matter of time before they wipe everybody out. That's where we're at in the story, okay? And so <laughs> that, that's what we made it to. Amazing. That was perfect. <laughs> perfect. So I'm in 1 Samuel uh, beginning in chapter 14. One day. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to get past this. One day. I just want you to think about this for a second. I love how, how direct the scripture is for us. It's just one day. It's not the day the Lord ordained. It's not the day the Lord spoke. It's not on the appointed day. It's not the holy day. It's not Easter. It's not Christmas. It's just a day they woke up and they're ready for something to happen. It's just a day. Some of the biggest things that happened in your life, it was just one day. It wasn't a special occasion. You didn't plan it. You were just driving in your car, and then wham, something changed, and it's just one day. You just picked up your phone, and all of a sudden it was crisis moment. You were at the doctor. Something just happened, but it was just one day. Some of the biggest moments of our lives happen just one day if we're ready for them. How we respond in those one days defines hmm, how we respond in those moments, in those one days, can define our destiny. It was just one day just one day. So Jonathan, he's the son of Saul, and he says to his young armor bearer, hey, come let us go over to that Philistine outpost on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. I don't know. I could get into that, but we'll just move on. It says, here's what his dad's doing. This is why he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gebeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. We covered that among whom were Ahijah, was wearing an ephod, his son Ichabod's brother, Attitude, son of Phineas and Ferb. No, just kidding. Son of Phineas, <laughs> the son of Eli, the Lord's priest. Like the moms got that right away. In Shiloh. <laughs> and no one was aware that Jonathan had left. I want you to catch this. Saul is just hanging out where? In the shade under a tree. He's just waiting. He knows he's outnumbered. He doesn't have a great plan. He's just hoping that God will do something sometime on the day. And Jonathan looks out and says, hey, just one day, let's go do something. 
Do you see the difference? The leader, the man who should have been full of faith, was paralyzed, waiting for something to give him direction. And yet Jonathan just said, hey, it's just one day. Let's go check him out. He doesn't tell his dad. Verse 4 kind of sets the scene. It says, on each side of the pass that Jonathan attended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sinai. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other towards the south towards Geba. Basically, he's walking on a path. There's a cliff on either side. There's two dudes. They got one sword. It's him and his armor bearer, and they're marching towards the Philippines. Philippines. They're marching towards the Philippines. The Philistine outpost. Verse 6. If you check out, you know, before I get done, try not to check out until after I get through verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows, which is the best burn ever. <laughs> Somehow there's just, if you don't read the scriptures, I'm, I mean, you are just missing out. If you love story, if you love adventure, if you love just ah, get into the world, it's so much fun. There's so much in here. He says, let's go, let's go on, check out, you know, the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. And then catch this. If you're a highlighter, an underliner, if you, you know, need to text it, post it on Facebook, whatever it is so that you don't lose this. He says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? Just someday? I can't watch. Everyone's just sitting around. I'm designed to do something. I can't just keep sitting here. So let's go over here. You come with me, and we're just going to go over here, and we're going to show ourselves to this army. And let's just see if God does something. That sound like a plan? We got one sword. There's two of us. We've been in one battle our whole lives, so we're pro. And we're going to show up at this army. We find out there's about 20 men at this station right here guarding the pass. We're going to head over there, and let's, let's just see if God maybe does something. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Are you? So, so my, my people that are like planners have just checked out on me now, right? You just don't, you don't work this way, and you're not designed. You're like, no, I need, I need my list. I need my you know, my pros and cons. We're going to measure it out. I got to call my mentors and get the input that I need. You know, I got, I got to do, I can't consider that. I'll be under the tree waiting for the word. Yet here's Jonathan taking this ridiculous faith-filled action. Let's go see what happens. Maybe God will help us. I read a story. I'm going to read it to you because it's amazing. Uh, when Anthony Olerchik, 86, and his wife, Viola, 85, left their Kenilworth, New Jersey home on an errand, the couple had no idea it would be over 24 hours before they would return home. A wrong turn sent them on a journey of perhaps 800 miles through three states. Their excursion didn't end until they collided with another car in Newtown, New Jersey. Family members reported the couple missing after the, unusual, the usually punctual pair missed a doctor's appointment. Viola suffers from severe illness and requires two insulin shots per day and several other medications. Nevertheless, the couple only stopped two times on their 24-hour trip and only for gas, not for food. Anthony said, if you eat, then you fall asleep. The next part of the story is, is the curious part. The extended journey could have been avoided, but Anthony refused to ask for directions during the entire trip. Even while stopping for gasoline twice, he wouldn't ask for help. In the end, having a collision probably spared their lives. 
fellas, come on, right? You guys are laughing because you can connect and relate to that, right? You're cruising. Your life is on cruise control and you're driving. And it doesn't seem like I'm going anywhere, but I'm not getting out of this car and asking for help. I'm not going to take any steps. I'm just going to ride this thing out and see if maybe we don't end up. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the nation's only so big. We're going to find it eventually. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Sometimes the Lord has to send a collision to knock us out of the path that we're on. I love that idea of, God, I do something for you, but I'm not getting out of this car and asking, and I'm not taking any steps. You're going to have to knock me off my path if you want my attention. Otherwise, I'll just sit here until you show up. I was thinking about, I was thinking about the conversations that we'll have in heaven. I was thinking about that moment when we're face to face with Jesus and, and, and we're just considering the time that we had here. I love how James says that where you just hear like a vapor and then it's gone. Like our lives are just a mist of vapor and we're sitting here with Jesus. And I was just thinking about the nuances of going over the course of our lives and what we've done. And I was thinking about a conversation that went something like this. God, I wasn't really clear all the things you did or didn't want me to do. So I just tried some things and some of them worked and some of them didn't work. And sometimes I embarrassed myself. I probably embarrassed you, but I was just trying to do something. And I don't know, you know, if I always had it right or if I was wrong, I'm not sure, but I was just trying to do something. And and I was thinking about that conversation. Then I was thinking about the other side of that conversation that maybe went something like, you know, Lord, I was there. I was cruising along and I was doing my job and I was raising my family. And I kept saying, God, if you need to interrupt me, you can interrupt me. But otherwise, I'm just going to keep on doing the best I can with what I got. But if you, you have permission. So, God, you had permission to interrupt me. Why didn't you ever interrupt me? I was thinking about that conversation. Standing before the Lord like, hey, where are you at? I was thinking about Jesus talking about how you saw me thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink and you saw me hungry and you didn't feed me and you saw me naked and you didn't clothe me. I never knew you. And somewhere in my heart just said, I thought, God, I don't know everything you want me to do, but can we just agree I'm supposed to do something? And I'd rather fail doing the best I can with whatever you gave me. I was thinking about my kids. I got little ones, you know. Uh, just turned nine, about to turn five in like a week and three and a half. And, you know, they'll come home from school or from Sunday school or whatever, and they'll have like things that they've made for me. I'm their dad, you know. And I, and, and I can't, they'll bring me something. They'll be like, look, Dad, I made this for you. And you know what I'm never like? Sweet. This is the thing that absolutely I had to have. Like I can now accomplish the next task on my list because of the thing that you brought me. That was amazing. No. I don't need the thing that they brought me, but I the thing that they brought me whether I needed it or not because they did it for me they did it for me can you imagine a loving father looking down at me like oh that's not really what I needed <laughs> right I didn't really need you to do that can you I, I don't I'm, I'm just okay you know I, I'm, I'm I'm away from the, the scripture a little bit but can we just be realistic for a moment here can you imagine God just like that's all you could do Like, that's your best version? I don't think that's the case at all. I imagine how I feel about the things that my son does and builds for me and brings to me or my daughter brings to me. I can just imagine the joy it would bring to the Lord to just look at, hey, there's the best I could figure out what to do with the instructions I have in front of me. All right, verse 7. Let's keep going. I'm going to be here all day. Um, So do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer said. 
go ahead, I'm with you, heart and soul. Man, there's so much there, but we're not going to stay there. Uh, so we leave. So <laughs> verse 8, Jonathan said, come then. I love this. Here's the strategy. He, again, these are military strategists, right? He says, we'll cross over towards the men and we'll let them see us. If they, <laughs> that's the best strategy, right? There's 20 of them. There's two of us, one sword. Our plan will be, ta-da, right? That's their strategy. And then we'll listen to what they say. It says, if they say to us, verse 9, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and we won't go up to them. But if they say, come on up to us, we'll climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord is giving them into our hands. All right. I don't have to explain that this is insane. You guys are with me? All right. This is insane. This is insane. That's our strategy. So both of them showed themselves to the Philippine Philippines. Once it's in there, it's like locked. The Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines. The Hebrews are crawling out of the holes. Remember, they're hiding in wells and stuff. They were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come on up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb on up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. I think I fell in love with this passage when I realized that it didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> like this, when I realized that in the natural, none of this made sense. Seriously, at least you had 600 men down below. You can make like a final, you know, stand. You know, there's movies made about less men than that, just holding the pass and trying to do something heroic. Like that, I would understand. That I would get fired up about. That's like a story that I can tell. But two guys saying, hey, you know what? Let's just walk over there. And we'll just be like, la, here we are. And if they say, you know, come on up to us, then we'll know that God's going to give them our hands. And if not, well, then we're just toast. And I was like, how in the world? This is the worst strategy I've ever seen. And it occurred to me that God doesn't need us to have an amazing strategy, but to be willing. We don't have to have a plan that just covers every contingency. We'd have to have a plan that puts us. I was thinking about, is there anything in my life right now? That if God doesn't do a miracle, I fail. Or is my life so clean, so neat, so put together that it's almost like I want to say, God, aren't you proud of what I've done and how little I need you? Ouch. His strategy is completely the other direction. God does a miracle or I die. But at least I'm not wasting away my time hanging out under some tree just thinking, well, maybe something will happen. Verse 13, Jonathan climbs up. He's using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. Now, I don't know how you climb, but I climb with my hands and my feet, right? He didn't have some other strategy. I think the scripture wanted us to be clear that he didn't levitate up the side of this cliff, that God didn't like, you know, tra uh, transport him up there because I want you to see the picture. Hey, you guys, I'm going to fight you. He is completely vulnerable. He doesn't even have He has one sword between two guys, and he doesn't even have his sword out. His hands and his feet are busy and occupied. They could literally just walk over the edge and drop a rock on him. They, he has no defense. He has no strategy. He's completely dependent on the Lord. I love that. And the scripture doesn't waste words. It's just like, you know, he's got to get up there. Verse 14, it says, in that first attack... Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about half an acre. Now, I don't know if you have a visual about half an acre, but depending on the size of your yard, 
basically either your yard or, you know, your yard and your neighbor's yard. Not that much space, okay? A couple of backyards worth of space. 20 to 2. One weapon on the two sides. They take on 20 men in this little pace and space. And then verse 15, and we're almost done. It says, then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outpost and raiding parties. And the ground shook. Listen to this. It was a panic that was sent by God. Hmm. They go up. They face insurmountable odds. Completely dependent on the power of God to demonstrate something. And not only does God show up so that they experience victory. God uses that first domino of someone who had faith, of someone who was a risk taker, to knock down the next domino, which infiltrated the entire territory of the enemy. And if you read the story, eventually the enemy gets so panicked that they're afraid that the Israelites must have invaded their ranks, and they start self-fighting, and they take themselves out. They don't, the, the rest of the Israelites come up, and they're just doing cleanup duty. Because this entire army has wiped themselves out because somebody had the guts to take a risk for God on just some day. Said, you know what? I know I'm supposed to do something. And I don't know exactly what that something is. But I'm going to get out of underneath this tree. I'm going to be like, Peter, come on now. And I'm going to get out of this boat. And I'm going to take whatever steps of faith it takes to put me in a place where if God doesn't show up, I'm stuck. But I believe that God is able to save, whether by many or by few. That's the kind of faith that Jonathan put on display. That's the domino that knocked down the gates of the enemy, that broke through the line, that caused even those that were sitting under the tree to get up and say, well, there's something happening over there. If someone will just go first, if someone will just step out, if someone had the guts to make that first step, that first declaration, to put themselves into a position where if God doesn't show up, it's going to fail, then God can do something through that person that starts the whole thing rolling. That's how neighborhoods get transformed. That's how churches get transformed. That's how communities get transformed. That's how reputation starts to spread. And and the enemy flees. And people become emboldened. And they come out of hiding. They get out of the well. They get out from under the tree. They start making a difference. And lives get changed. And the... Come on now. I'm working way too hard for you to just not be... Not be checking with me. It's okay to say amen. Can I get at least one? Yeah, come on. Wake up for me, church. That's how we do it. God didn't need a huge army. He needed a risk taker. Someone that would do it. Listen, some of you are like, but Pastor Mike, how do I know if if the risk is good or not? I'm going to be practical for just a second because I don't want to leave you without how to do it, okay? David wanted to build a temple. 2 Chronicles 6, you can find it. I don't he wanted to build a temple. He's like, I got a house. God needs a house, right? And and he's like, I'll build, uh, you know, I got money and people, so we'll build God a house. And it was awesome. And he wanted to do that. And then Solomon's telling the story, and he's like, I just finished the temple. My dad wanted to build it, but God told my dad it was a really good idea that you wanted to do it, but you weren't supposed to do that, so I had someone else do it. There's some things that, you know, it's okay if it's in your heart, and it's not necessarily the thing. Just start. God respected what was in his heart to do it. God God spoke. So sometimes we're waiting for God to speak to do something. I'm saying we need to do something, and then if God speaks, then fine, we don't do it. 
That's what David did. He said, hey, I just know God needs a house. And God's like, you're right, I do need a house, but that's not on you. And he's like, okay. God didn't smite David for taking a step of action. God commended his heart. So that's the right heart. You're just not the right person. Let me bring the right person in to do that. It's going to be your son that does that. So what are we supposed to do? How do we know what to do? Well, I get into this book, and there's some things that we're all supposed to do. Right? I mean, I don't see like the, when you hear my voice, then go into all the nation and make disciples. I don't see that. I say, hey, go do that. Right? When, when James tells us, uh, 127, that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and fallness is to do this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world, I don't see a wait till you hear from me and then help somebody. I hear, hey, that's what we do. I mean, if I read that, it's almost like we should, we should lead with, we should be doing this unless we hear otherwise. All right? There's things... I don't know if this does in you what it does in me because I have this excitement and, and I have this fear, okay? I have excitement and fear. Like, I want to do it, and oh, man, it's going to take me out of my comfort zone. It's going to pull me. So how do I know? Where do I go? So I'm going to tell you. It's like this. When you get ready to jump, right, there's a few things you need to know. One is, do you have a firm foundation to jump off of, right? <laughs> I was watching American Ninja Warrior, right? And these guys are trying to do this trampoline thing, and they can't, they can't trampoline, right? They, don't, they didn't train that. And so these guys are all trying to jump off the trampoline and catch it, and they fail, 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 because the foundation wasn't firm, right? They try to jump with, right? So here, first things first. You want to jump? You want to take a step of faith? You want to do something? You better have a foundation. How do you get a foundation? You build a foundation with the Word of God. God will never take you to a place of risk that violates His Word. All right? So that's practical. If you're like, hey, I think I'm supposed to take this risk from God. I'm supposed to rob bank. Let's go back to that, right? I don't think you are. Here's how I think that that's probably, you know, bad pizza last night and not the Word of God. Because it doesn't line up with the Word of God. So God will never take you to a place where your risk doesn't line up with His Word. The other thing you need is a direction. You need a foundation and a direction, right? How do you get direction? Well, when I'm playing with my kids and they jump and they want me to catch them, how do they know where to jump? They see me. They hear my voice. They spend time with me. And I say, hey, jump. And then I catch them. When you take a step, when you take a risk, you need foundation. You need to know how to hear your dad's voice. To step out, you need to be spending time in prayer and building that. It should be so in you that you know it lines up with his word, that you know it's lined up with his voice. And here's what I love the story's insane, but I, but, but I did catch this. He took someone with him on the journey. He took two people, really. He said, perhaps the Lord will be with us, right? And who is he talking to? His buddy, Oliver. Some of these risks that are in your heart to do, man, do them together. Let's do it together. That dream that's in you, let's find some people who can get in on that dream and let's do it together. Can you imagine what this church would look like if we started doing things together? If we said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get together, and we're just going to help some people. You pick them. I don't even need to pick them. Let's do it. Let's pick some people. Let's help them. Let's do it. That's true religion, right? Religion our Father accepts is pure and faultless. Look after orphans and widows, people in their distress, and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Let's just do it. Let's get a couple people together. Let's just do it. And 
haven't even started talking about life communities and small groups. You guys are going to, you're going to just eventually feel like I'm arm barring you into community because the scripture puts us in community. And so I, I, we're there. But if you're not in community with some believers so that you can speak some dreams into existence, so that you've got somebody who's got your back so that you can cross across the valley and the dangers and know that at least somebody's with you, encouraging you along with the Lord, then that anything is possible, then, then come on, let's get our foundation so we can do it. So here's my prayer, Celebration Center, and my question, what would it look like if we started living this way? And for a couple weeks now, I've been hammering you with the opportunities and the potential that happens when we believe that God is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. Faith gets involved, and courage gets involved, and we just assume that we're supposed to do something, and we do it. Transformation happens. It starts in us. We can't be the same if we start living that way. And then it gets into our homes, our marriages, our relationships, our kids, and our neighborhoods and beyond. That's how it starts. Domino, domino, domino. God does a miracle. That's my prayer. That's my prayer. So here's my question, and I'm not going to pull it out of you today. I just, what are the risks? What are the dreams? Where are they at? What is it? It's in you. Let's do it. Let's have some guts. Let's get together. It may not be today. It may just be one day. We'll get there. Let's get our foundation. Let's hear the voice of God. Let's get some people with us. Let's just we're supposed to do something. Come on, my procrastinators. Let's just assume. God, thanks. Thanks for stirring us, for pushing us out of the comfort zones. Thanks for examples that help us to understand. It may not always make sense in the natural, but my God is not limited to the natural. You move in the supernatural. You're able to do above and beyond exceedingly more than anything we could ever ask for or imagine. So why would we limit it to what makes sense on paper? Let's make sense in eternity. Let's stand before God and, and, and someday say, I didn't know everything I should do, but I knew I should do something. So here's all I could do with the time that you gave me. And I left it all out there. And I, and I, I don't know if, if you think that it's awesome or not, but it's all I could do. I want that kind of testimony, that kind of story, lives that are changed, breakthrough that happens, chains that are broken, because we stepped up and just believe that you are who you say you are, that you'll do what you say you can do. And so we stepped out of faith and we saw the hand of God move in our community, in our time. God, I don't want to miss it. Change us. Transform us. Give us courage, God. Help us to just do it and live it. We love you and thank you. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. You guys all right? Can you give the Lord a hand this morning? All right.